received the word of God with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so, Acts 17.11. So what Acts 17.11 should do for me and you this evening is it should remind us that there was a, there's a distinct division between two groups mentioned in Acts 17.11. And those two groups are, one, the Jews at Thessalonica in the synagogue there, or from the synagogue, and the Jews at Berea, and their varied responses to the gospel. But we wouldn't have such the letter, we wouldn't have the letter that 1 Thessalonians is if those had been the only people at Thessalonica when the gospel was preached there. Because the response that you read about in Acts 17.11 where the Bereans are extolled for their readiness of mind and their willingness to look at the scriptures versus the um, lack of readiness of the, the Jews from Thessalonica, we wouldn't have 1 Thessalonians if that were the only group present at Thessalonica. So let's take our Bibles and look at Acts 17 for just a brief moment, just a quick reminder before we jump right into the book. And so when you look at Acts 17, it's talking about Paul, of course, traveling in his missionary journeys, and it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them in three Sabbath days. So here Paul is spending three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. Now I want you to notice very closely verse 4. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went unto the synagogue, into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So basically you have the Jews at Berea who readily received the gospel. Then you have the unbelieving Jews from Thessalonica who even chased, uh, who even followed Paul to Berea. But then at, at Thessalonica, you had Jews that believed the gospel and you had those Greeks mentioned in verses uh, for and following. So that's who we're reminded of whenever we look at 1 Thessalonians. And so when we think about 1 Thessalonians, definitely we want to think about the second coming because as we mentioned before, has been mentioned already, every chapter in 1 Thessalonians mentions the second coming. Chapter 1, for example, for they, verses 9 and 10, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. 
whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? In other words, they are being in the presence of Christ at His return. Isn't that Paul's joy? It is. For ye are our glory and joy. So when Christ would return and they would be there, that's the joy, that's joy for Paul. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another, and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Chapter 4. I won't read the whole passage, but verses 13 to 18 all deal with the second coming. But I will say this. Um, verse 16, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and, with, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For ye yourselves, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Every chapter mentions the second coming. And chapter 1 follows that suit in mentioning the second coming. So we have the second coming being a focal point of Paul's writing as he's writing to the Thessalonians. And you think about where the, how the church began there at Thessalonica and the uh, resistance that was met there in those unbelieving Jews, but then there were the believing Jews and the believing Greeks. So take a look at chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. I want to use that and then compare back to chapter 1, and then we'll basically make camp, if you will, in chapter 1. But when I think of 1 Thessalonians, one of the passages that I think of is chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And in fact, we'll go ahead and back up and grab verse 8. So in 5, verse 8, let us who are of the day... Let us who are of the day, so he's making this comparison about the second coming, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath. Notice that. God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So I want you to notice, not appointed to wrath, that's not what God has done. He's not appointed us or set us out unto wrath, but to obtain salvation by Jesus. Notice he's, his death on our behalf in this passage. That's the key to the second coming being a positive event for Christians. Now go back to chapter 1. Keeping that word wrath in mind, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10, and then we're going to basically look at the whole chapter, some points from the whole chapter. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, he says, For they themselves, talking about how whenever the gospel had gone out from Thessalonica, and people had been, had been responsive to that message, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols. Notice the two things they did when they turned to God. 
Turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. But notice further, to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. There's the death of Christ on our behalf and even the resurrection. Whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, notice this, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So very plainly, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, you have this concept of wrath that's coming. Chapter 1, he says, we've been delivered from the wrath to come. But the wrath is coming. Chapter 5, he says, we've not been appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And thus the significance, the importance, the great need of that gospel message, talking about the resurrected Christ and those that have obeyed that message having hope. And you'll remember there in chapter 5, verse 8, he says something there about those who were of the day, and then this relates back again to chapter 1. Verse 8 he says in chapter 5, But let us who are of the day put on, or be sober, putting on the breastplate of what does he say there? He says, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Notice that hope of salvation. Hope, it means desire plus expectation. In other words, I expect something to happen and I also desire that thing to happen. And this is an assurance. This looking forward to salvation. That's what Christians are going to do. They're going to put on the breastplate of faith and love and they're going to, and the helmet, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In other words, they're going to desire and expect salvation because of what Christ has done. That relates back to looking for His coming, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. So notice that again. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So very very clearly, wrath is coming. Jesus sent the disciples out preaching the gospel, warning others of the wrath that's to come. He said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, 15, and 16. John 5, 28 and 29, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in which all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may receive the things done in this body, according to that He has done, whether it be good whether it be that, 2 Corinthians 5.10. It's very clear that a judgment day is coming and that part of that judgment day is wrath. There will be those that have not obeyed the gospel of Christ, like Paul said in the second letter to the Thessalonians, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you and to you who are troubled. Rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that, that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9. So here in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he tells them, he, he talks about how they had done two things, essentially, whenever they had obeyed the gospel. When they turned to God, they turned to do two things. And that's what we're going to look at in the rest of this chapter. All the things that the gospel caused. What the gospel does, you could say. In other words, when the gospel goes somewhere, and, it's when, it, and when it's received, these are the kinds of results that, that come from the preaching and teaching of the gospel and the positive reception of the gospel. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. So that's what we should be thinking about as Christians. We've obeyed the gospel of Christ. Now our, our mission should be to serve God and to wait for His Son from heaven. And that waiting, that's not the idea that you and I think of the word waiting. We think of the word waiting as basically saying, well, I'm going to sit around and do nothing and I'm just waiting for something to happen. Well, that's not this wait. This waiting is an expectation of His return and being prepared for that return. That's the context and the idea here. We want to look for His return, to expect His return. That's that hope of salvation, chapter 5, verse 8. That's like Paul, that's like uh, is written elsewhere, Hebrews 9, 27, and as, as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So let's take a look in chapter 1 and find some things that the gospel did when it went to Thessalonica. Because I'm afraid often all we think of in that time frame in the book of Acts is what happened in Berea. We think of those noble Bereans, how they searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. But remember, the comparison made in Acts 17.11 is only between the Jews, the unbelieving Jews in the synagogue at Thessalonica compared to those, those Jews in Berea who received the Gospel. And so if we're not careful, we'll forget that there, are these, there were Jews in Thessalonica there were some Jews in Thessalonica who received the teaching of the gospel, and certainly a number, a, quite a number of Greeks who did as well. So when we look at chapter 1, I want to notice a few things. first thing that, I, that comes to our mind here as far as what did the gospel do when it went to Thessalonica? The first thing is it produced a church. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel went to Thessalonica, and the gospel did in Thessalonica what it does everywhere. It, it produced a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about what Jesus said when he was still on this earth, he said, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16, 18, 19. Jesus said he was going to build his church. He gave the keys to Peter. Peter took those keys, and on the day of Pentecost, as was prescribed by God, he began preaching the gospel message whenever the Holy Spirit came. Just as in alignment with Joel chapter 2. The Holy Spirit came, 
the apostles are preaching and teaching, and Peter stood up and, and addressed the situation about them saying these men are filled with new wine. He says these men are not drunk. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and he began preaching and teaching. And after he had gotten to a certain point in his sermon, they, said, they, they interrupted him and said, well, what shall we do? And he told them to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and he shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. Notice this, in verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Notice that that happened in that all that same concept took place in Thessalonica, not all of the Thessalonians, as we notice, but that did take place in Thessalonica. There were those who who readily received the word and obeyed it. Then verse forty-seven of Acts chapter two, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Notice that whenever Luke writes that, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. In other words, those that were doing, that were obeying the gospel, they were repenting and being baptized after believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Having heard that message, they were willing to confess Christ, repent of their sins, be baptized into Christ. And every time someone did that, that's what you that's what took place, is what you read in chapter two, verse forty seven. The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So every time somebody heard that message, whether it was in Jerusalem, whether it was in Judea, whether it was in Samaria, whether it was in Thessalonica, whether it was in Berea, whether it was in the United States of America, wherever that message has gone and it is preached, the Lord is adding people to the church. And that's what happened in Thessalonica when Paul went there and preached the gospel. It produced a church of Christ. Because you know that Paul taught the same thing everywhere. He makes that very plain in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. As I taught everywhere in every church. He was pleading with the Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10 that they be united on the doctrine that he had taught them that they allow that to be their governing that their their governing governing source rather than their own wills and desires and wants. And he reminded them that he had taught the same thing everywhere in every church. When he went to Thessalonica, he preached the gospel, it produced a church. When he went to Corinth, he preached the gospel, it produced a church. When the gospel was taken to Rome, it was preached, and it produced a church. So when the gospel went to Thessalonica, it produced a church, and those Christians were in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ because the church is the body of Christ. And you can't help but think about the church, but then think about the second coming in a very positive light. You think about Paul's words to the Ephesians. Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, 
not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish before Him in love. So you think about that presentation that's happening there. And I, for some time now, have thought about that presentation, as I've mentioned here before, as the work of Christ in His first coming, presenting it to Himself at His second coming, if you will, the idea of He came and He died for mankind, paid the price for man's sins, died on the cross, taking our place, the church was established. The good news spread. Man can obey that message and have their sins washed away, just as it was being done in Acts chapter 2, just as took place in Thessalonica, just as took place in Berea. And that when people do that, then they're waiting for the Lord's return. And that's what he's doing. That's what Ephesians 5 is picturing, that he might present it to himself a glorious church. Because not only did he do that when he first came... But ever since then, he's continuing to wash those that have obeyed the gospel of Christ in his blood as they continue to walk in the light, 1 John 1, 7. So he's content, he, he did the work necessary to establish the church, to send the gospel out to the world. He's continuing to cleanse people as they continue to walk in the light. And, he's, and whenever he comes back, he will receive the church which is his body. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So when the gospel went to Thessalonica, it produced a church of Christ. Another thing, when the gospel went to Thessalonica, it produced those who were known for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. Verse 3. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. Verse 2, he had said, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. So when he's praying about the Thessalonians, he then remem he's remembering, verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. So those three things, it produced those who, work, who, who, who uh, are known for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. You think about that. Work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. When I think of work of faith and labor of love, I think that they're very similar. Because they both work and labor are very similar terms. And I think about faith, I think about the concepts of faith coming by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11, 1. Hebrews 11, 6. But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder, of them that diligently seek Him. That's what it does. That's what faith does. It gives an expectation. It causes Christians to look forward to the return of Christ. Work of faith. You see, faith works. In fact, faith without works, James 2, is dead. Being alone. Faith works. It does what God says. But faith 
works by love. Galatians 5, 6. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Work of faith and labor of love. Well, what does love do? Love keeps the commandments of God. John 14, 15. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Love keeps one centered around God and His teaching. Matthew 22, 36 and following. Master, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus answered and said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And you could go through the entire Old Testament instance after instance, character after character, and say, did this person practice love? For example, were Adam and Eve practicing love whenever they said, whenever they, whenever they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No, because God had said, don't do it. Was Cain practicing love whenever he offered his sacrifice of self-will? No, because that's not what God said to do. And God said, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. Were the people of the, who led to the flood, were they practicing love whenever they were going about doing uh, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually? No. And you can go on down the line and ask that question to everyone, but you could say, was Abel practicing love whenever he offered his sacrifice? Yes. Because he did that which, was God, which God had said to do and God was well pleased with his sacrifice. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, 8. Genesis 6, 22. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. That's what faith and love do. They hear the word of God, and they follow accordingly. Thus, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house. Hebrews 11, 7. Remembering without ceasing, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. We talked about that word hope already. It's the desire plus the expectation. In other words, they're looking forward to something. They're expecting something to happen. That is, the Lord to return and to be found pleasing in His sight when He does. That's their hope. That's their desire and their expectation. They expect that and they desire it. So when he says, remember without ceasing your work of faith, they, were, they had gone to work. The gospel went there and it set them to work. Their labor of love, they had gone to work. They were demonstrating and exercising the love that God had commanded of them and requires of them and of you and me too today. They had put that to practice. And patience of hope. They were enduring what they had to endure because you remember the environment in which they obeyed the gospel, there were some people there that weren't so friendly to the gospel. Those unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica. I mean, they essentially started a riot. Their patience of hope 
in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. So when the gospel goes somewhere, it produces those who are known for their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of hope. Let me ask you and me, is that what you and I are known for? Am I known for my work of faith, my labor of love, and patience of hope? I need to be better in those ways. And you look at your life and find ways that you could be better in, in, working, in the working of your faith, in the laboring of your love, and in the patience of your, of your endurance, the hope and patience of your endurance? Certainly. But what else did the gospel do when it went there? Look at verse 6. Well, back to verse 5 first. For our gospel came not into you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Notice what they did. And ye became, here's what the gospel did. <coughs> here's what the gospel did. Ye became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that, in other words, to the degree that, or such that, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. So the gospel produces followers of Christ. The gospel produces followers of God and of Christ. Remember what Jesus said as he was on this earth? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. Verse 26, he said, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, there's a heavy cost that goes along, physically speaking, that goes along with being a follower of Christ. You and I are seeing that seem to take more and more shape these days as to the cost that will be associated with being a follower of Christ. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. They became followers of Paul, but of God. That's what Paul wanted. If anyone became a follower of him, it was only as he was a follower of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. They became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. This pathway, when you follow God, when you follow Christ, it's going to be entering in at the straight gate. It's going to be walking through the narrow way where the few are going. But the good news is, it's the way unto life. It's the way unto salvation. Because you see, the broad way, the wide gate, the broad way, leads to destruction. And many of their which go in their eye. And we know that. Most people will seek the broad way, the wide gate, and they'll go unto destruction, unfortunately. 
And we can't let what many or most do be any kind of a gauge or any kind of a determining, determining factor of what me and you do. Of what you and I do. There we go. That's a little better. They became followers of the Lord when the gospel went to Thessalonica. They become followers of God. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. When we follow God, when we follow Christ, He's the way home. It's not just an initial, I've obeyed the gospel, I've been baptized into Christ, I've had my sins washed away, I'm in the church now. It's a continual walking in the light, continual, continual following. Because folks, if we're going to follow Christ, you can't finish following Him until you go where He is. And we've got to remember that. That's part of that hope. We cannot finish following Christ until we go where He went. And He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. And you and I won't go there until the second coming. Now don't get me wrong, we may die before the Lord returns. And our... That's one of the times I'm okay with using the word faith because it's applicable. Our faith will have been sealed. When we die, that's it. We've, we've said what we're going to say. We've done what we're going to do. Our judgment is set. There is no changing it after we die. We've done what we're going to do. When, we are, when, when the Lord returns and the dead shall rise, come forth to the judgment, then they're going to be sorted out. So when we've done what we're supposed to do, we die in hope. We die in gladness. We die in positive expectation of the Lord's return. And we say, I look forward to it. But we won't finish following Christ until we go where He's gone. But while we're here, our following Christ should entail what you see these brethren doing work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. It produced followers of the Lord. That's what the gospel does. The gospel, it produces the church of Christ. The gospel produces those who are known for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. The gospel produces those who are followers of the Lord. But what else does the gospel do? We talked about how they were followers, such to the point that they were examples, verses 6 and 7. But now look at verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we have unto you. In other words, whenever we see that your, that your faith is being taught to those in Macedonia and Achaia, that people are hearing and receiving the gospel based on it going out from you, 
in Thessalonica. We know that when we went in unto you, that it was a positive and good reception of the gospel. So, when the gospel goes somewhere, it goes out from there. You see, the gospel produces the church of Christ. The gospel produces those who are known for their works of faith, laborers of love, and their patience of hope. The gospel produces followers of God who are exemplary. And the gospel produces those who take the gospel with them to others and who send it to others. Verse 8, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we not, need not speak anything. Now this is where we've got some real work to do in the church, as is our culture in the United States of America. I'm going to spend a moment here. Because somehow or another, we've allowed ourselves to fall into the thinking that someone has to have the title of minister or preacher or evangelist or I don't know what else. And uh, in other words, in our minds, they've got to be an a paid, supported employee of the church for this kind of thing to apply to them. But I'm not a paid, supported employee of the church, therefore this doesn't apply to me. I don't have to take the gospel to the world. That's what I paid him for, someone would say. And this isn't just, you know, this is applicable anywhere. This is a thought process in a lot of places. But let's ask ourselves, do we really believe that? Just asking you to think to, your, to yourself there. I'm not asking you to answer it aloud. Do we really think that? You know, I'll, I'll get it down to the nitty gritty. Is, is it Russ's job? Is that, is that the only person who's, whose job it is? Or, or maybe Chuck, he's kind of a second, he's almost right there, I mean, because, you know, OABS. So it's definitely their jobs, but not anybody else's. Folks, the devil is coming for you. And the only way you will survive, spiritually speaking, is if you take this message and you put it into your mind, your heart, and you practice it. Because the day might come. I'm certainly no prophet. Definitely not. But the day might come that in this country we may not even have such things as the complete situations like we have now. Well, we pay a guy to get up every Sunday and he preaches for us. And I don't really have to study that much. I just, you know, whatever he tells me, I listen to that. And then I, I go on my day and I'm good. Folks, pick up your Bible study it. You and I have to. And whenever I was one of those paid employees, or however you want to describe that term, whenever I was one of those and I tried to encourage people to study their Bibles, you know what they told me? Oh, but you've got time because you're a preacher. You're a minister. Folks, that's an 
Don't get me wrong, I get it. Somebody who is paid and supported to be a preacher has some more opportunities in regards to studying the Bible. I mean, that's part of what their job should entail. But that has nothing, I might say, what does that have to do with the price of eggs when it comes to whether or not you study your Bible? I don't see the comparison. There isn't one, folks. And if we let the devil, if we let the devil convince us that there is one, we're wrong. And we're in danger of being lost. Just like those Bereans. But also, evidently, the Thessalonians who did listen to the truth. Remember what it says about the Bereans? These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Remember who it's comparing between. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word of God with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. If you and I are going to take the Gospel and we're going to take it out, it, it's not, we're not, we haven't checked the box, if you will, by the fact that we have a paid minister here at Uligal or the fact that we send money to missionaries or the fact that Chuck is a member here and OABS is a thing. We haven't. Those are good things. Don't get me wrong. Those are great works and I'm glad we do them. But that doesn't fulfill everything that you and I have as a, as, a, as a responsibility as a Christian to make sure we're not only learning what the Gospel says continually, but helping others to see it as well. Because there are going to be people that Russ is never going to contact, have come into contact with that you and I will. There are going to be people that Chuck's never going to come in contact with you and I will. And they the same, right? They have their own situations in that same way. But the Thessalonians, when the gospel went there, it produced a group of people that the gospel went out from them. And if the Great Commission doesn't apply to you, then why were you baptized? Because I'm just saying, if... If whenever he says, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all the way, even unto the end of the world. If the teaching part, the continual teaching part, does not apply to us, then why in the world will we baptize? So, when the gospel goes somewhere, when it went to Thessalonica, it produced a preaching church. A church that sent the word out. And then verses 9 and 10, we kind of come back to them and that's where we, in a sense, began. But they themselves show of us. In other words, when the gospel goes out from you and we see these people obeying the gospel, they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. And how you turned, <coughs> how you turned to God. Notice that that's what the gospel does. It turns people to God. How you turned to God from idols. It gets rid of idolatry. It it gets every other god, little g, out of the way. It puts them behind you. And don't and you and I can't fall under the the deceiving thought or the deceptive thought, I should say, that, oh, well, I, I've never bowed down to a, you know, a Buddha or a, some other golden idol that's shaped like a being of some sort. Well, therefore, I've never, I, I, I'm, 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 is not a thing for me. Folks, you and I know better than that. Anything that takes the place of God is basically an idol. Covetousness is idolatry. Paul said that very plainly to the Colossians. 
covetousness is idolatry. If covetousness is idolatry, then anything that I want that starts to lead me how I, how I govern and, and conduct my life, that's a God to me. In other words, when God gets unseated, if you will, from His primary position in being the primary power in my life, the primary governing influence in my life, and I let other things supersede that, I'm now following idolatry. They had turned to God from idols, as in literal idols. Turned to God from idols to serve. They turned to serve. Are you and I willing to serve? That's who Jesus was. He was a servant. Washing feet, caring for others, talking with those that, uh, that his, even, even his disciples thought didn't even deserve the time of the day. Because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10 And God loved the world. That's why he gave his son. Any human being is part of that world. Turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Folks, that's who he is. He's living and he's true. take anything else away from this. Remember those two things. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to serve and I'm supposed to wait for His Son. Because we never can let the second coming slip out of our minds and thoughts to the point that we don't really consider it. How long has it been since you thought about the second coming? In other words, hey, Jesus could come before I finish the sentence. He could come before the end of the service. He could come before you and I go to bed tonight. He could come before we get up and eat breakfast tomorrow. He could come. There's no telling. I don't know. That's what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 and 2. But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. I don't know when he'll return and neither do you. Are we ready for his return? Are we looking toward his return? In other words, Knowing it's going to be a reality one day, do I expect it? Do I? Or do I just let life become so engulfing of my way and my being that I don't think about the Lord's return? The gospel went to Thessalonica. And the gospel produced a church of Christ. It produced individuals who, known, who were known for their work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. It produced those known for those things that were followers of the Lord. It produced those who sounded out the word from them. It produced those who had turned to God to serve and to wait. Those, things, those two things are done Simultaneously, hand in hand, parallel activities to serve and to wait. That's my job. That's your job. That's his job. That's her job. That's everyone's job. Serve and wait. Expect. Look for. Anticipate his coming. And know that when he comes, he's going to 
judge. So remember what he says there in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. See, I don't feel bad about using chapter 5 because I'm preaching chapter 5 too. So anything I take from chapter 5, I'm taking from my own. If we get that opportunity, Lord will. So chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, he says, God has not appointed us to wrath. I think this is sort of the key of Thessalonians in and of itself anyway. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And He raised from the dead to deliver us from the wrath to come. The Lord has given us the gospel by His death and sending it out to the world. And he said that anyone that hears, believes, repents, confesses, and is baptized for the remission of sins, that they'll be added to the church, their sins will be washed away, and they can have that expectation, that hope of his return. Once we've obeyed the gospel of Christ, if we've fallen away, we can, through penitence, confession, and prayer, come back. We can make it right. We can have our sins washed away continually by the blood of Christ as we walk in the light. We can, as 1 John 1, 9 says, we can confess our sins. The invitation is yours. If we can help you, come while we stand and while we sing.